0: Some prayer. Jesus, I thank you for uh, this great opportunity we have to uh, look at your word in its uh, totality. As we look at doctrine, we realize that what we have the opportunity to do is to look at the full body of your revealed truth to us. And we go, well, what does it say to us in its wholeness? And certainly today, as we look at your essence, your reality... We look at Father, Son, and Spirit. I pray that we will be uh, overwhelmed by your greatness, by your power, by your glory. I pray that this is no uh, trivial matter we go, oh, you know, the Trinity, that's so obvious. And yes, we affirm that. I I pray that that from this, really, we uh, look at you with a whole new sense of love and worship and awe. And so, uh, instruct us today, woo us today, move us today. Uh, May we hold dear what it is we learn of you, and as we seek to live for you. So we praise you, and we thank you, Jesus, that we bring this prayer to the triune God through you, our mediator, who has made this possible. We give you all praise in your awesome name. Amen. Well, this week is a very cool week because this week is Independence Day, right? We love the 4th of July. We love Independence Day. In fact, um, I, I grew up in Arizona and there are two holidays that stink in Arizona. One is Christmas because there's no snow. Not even remotely close. People just hang up lit tamale lights at Christmas, like because that's very Santa Clausish, ish And uh, so Christmas is a drag, but then the 4th of July is also a drag because the 4th rolls in, and what they do is they just hand you a squirt gun. You know, like here. That's what you get to do. You get no fireworks whatsoever, man. You will bo- just burn the whole state down, right? No fireworks. So being up here, kind of fun. Love shooting off the fireworks. Love the 4th of July for all of the festivities and that kind of thing. But if we are to reflect for just a minute on this holiday it is powerful it is a remarkable and powerful holiday because what it memorializes is frankly the greatest country on God's green earth that's what it does it celebrates this experiment that changed the world it celebrates a country that does things a lot different even in the realm of humanitarianism care investment aid, just loving the unlovely. I mean, this is a profound country. And so on the 4th of July, I think there's huge value on family stopping and having some traditions that really memorializes how great America is, that captures the very embodiment of everything we hold dear. So as a family, as the Boswells, uh, kind of what we do is we wake up on the 4th of July and the very first thing is we put out our flag. All right. We got our flag right there. And so we put that out. And then when the flag is out, I take all the kids. We go into the living room. We huddle around and I read them some of the founding documents of our country just to ground them a little bit. We have some trading cards of real great patriots that we pass around. We exchange as uh, kids and parents and They all enjoy that. And then after that, we actually go to the parade. We love the parade. The marching is awesome. We love the parade. Later in the day, we have fireworks. We enjoy the fireworks over one of the greatest capitals that we have in our beloved nation. And at the end of the night, I fire the favorite American gun into the air just to enjoy everything that is America right there. Now, at this point, some of you are laughing because you're like, well, I know how I feel about the president. This is accurate. I get that, all right? Uh, Others may be slightly offended at my little stab here, and for good reason. And you should be a bit offended at this idea, because I started off by saying how great America is, how amazing America is. We are the greatest country on God's green earth. But then I messed up. The definition. I missed the essence. I contaminated the accurate view of what our country's all about. And even though I might have been very sincere and very earnest and very excited, yes, God bless America, red and yellow. You know, like, that's so fantastic. I love the USA. All of my sincerity is actually insult. Because what America actually is, and what America actually stands for, and what actually defines the United States, is the essence of our country. And no amount of my enthusiasm or excitement, misdirected, can counter that. In other words, if I'm going to be excited about the United States of America, I'm not excited about red and yellow. It's red, white, and blue. I'm not excited about an AK being shot into the air, which for once it's nice to see a white dude holding one of those and not a jihadist. But, uh, you know, it's like, wow, I haven't seen that since I was a kid and the Soviets were our enemy. All right, so that's good to see. All right, but that's not going to capture it. That's not America. I need to get on board with what America is if I'm really going to celebrate America. And if that is true to the essence of the 4th of July and our country, How much more is that true when it comes to God? When we really think about who God is, what matters is who God is. Who God declares Himself to be. See, I think this is of tremendous value this morning because we do live in a culture that will say it's not what you believe, but that you believe. It's not so much the content, but the sincerity. And I honestly believe God sits in heaven and both weeps and is filled with wrath over that notion. Because God looks and says, wait a minute. Who I've revealed myself to be, who I am, what I declare, that matters. And if you think sincerity can trump accuracy, you're going to die and wake up in hell someday and be shocked to find out that what I said matters. Not just that you were sincere. Not just that you were earnest. Not just that you uh, had enthusiasm in this realm. See, it's not just that we believe. It's that in which we believe that matters. And so that's why the topic today is critical. Who God is matters. It matters. In fact, it is the very foundation of this entire series, right? It's the very foundation. This is the place where it counts, right? If we mess up God, everything that comes after that is just useless. Or worse, it's dangerous. And so we want to see who is God and who God is, why that matters. Now... To do that and to go through the series for the summer, uh, we are tagging into this book right here. If you've picked up this book, great. If you have not, we encourage you to get it. We're not actually teaching from this book. In fact, very little of what I'm going to preach on today really flows from this chapter in this book. We're just sort of using it supplementally, but we're doing it because we want to make sure the people realize that, you know what, what Christians believe has a huge impact on everything that Christians do. It's why we try to take seriously the issues of theology and doctrine. Theology is just the study of God. It's a God-centered life. And we go, man, that's important, right? Paul told Titus, teach that which accords with sound doctrine. And we go, well, that's what we want to do. Paul told Timothy, another young pastor, he says, man, when you preach the word, make sure you cut it straight, just like you would cut a pattern straight to sew it together. Because if you don't cut it straight, it won't be sewn right and you'll have a mess. So as a church, we want to cut it straight. As a church, we want to make sure we teach what accords with sound doctrine. We don't want to just go with our gut. We don't want to just go with intuition. Well, that sounds good about God. I like that version of God. We want to go with what God has said about himself through his word, to his church, for his glory, and our good. That is our heart. To look who he is, what he says, and why it matters. So we start with God. Ground zero. The focal point of everything. And as we move into the subject today, again, I come with legitimate fear and trembling. Uh, this week took a lot longer to develop, and for a number of reasons. But, but really, what I walked away with was something where I thought, I literally need to, to do something I would never do for a couple of reasons. One is because I love my shoes, and I don't want to hurt anybody in the front row when I kick them off. But this is holy ground stuff today. It's holy ground. As Moses interacted with God at the bush, and God says, you need to peel those sandals off. This is a sacred place. Well, this topic is sacred. It is holy ground that we step onto today. Who God is matters. Why is that true? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, And you go back to Exodus chapter 20. There, God and Moses, they meet on the mountain. And and God says, you know what, there's going to be a lot of laws after this, but I'm going to start off with top ten. Ten things that everybody needs to know, ten things that Israel needs to do. God is detoxing Israel from their idols, from their pagan gods, their broken ideas, everything else. So he says, man, here are the top ten. And listen to the first three. He says, I am the Lord your God, so first, you shall have no other gods before me. Second, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And he says, third, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. If I was to say to you, of all the commands in the Bible, what are the first three? You would want to go there. And so this tells us something about what God says about himself. He says, first of all, hey man, no other gods. I'm it. I'm it. Second, he says, don't make any kind of image around who i am in other words don't try to put on extra constraints don't try to put borders and images around god that articulate god god says i am unbounded and when you speak of me don't be lazy about that don't just treat it as an idle thing a vain thing don't just say it off the cuff or flippantly or talk about my character and attributes like a plain everyday ordeal or situation he says no you see me as holy You see me so different. These are the top commands. Then you plug into the New Testament. It says in the Gospel of Mark, one of the scribes came and heard them disputing, Jesus and some of the other religious leadership. And so he asked, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is this Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind and with all of your strength. What is the greatest commandment? Love God. What is the first commandment? Worship no other God. What's the second commandment? Don't make any images of God or other gods. What's the third? Don't treat His name flippantly. See, this is what I mean by holy ground, because if this is the first and greatest commandment, then equally, if we miss this, it is the first and greatest sin. See, when we think about the greatest sin, we sometimes will think, well, murder is the greatest sin. Or some type of sexual misconduct is the greatest sin. Or lying is the greatest sin. Or pride is the greatest sin. But the Bible will say, no, 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 no. Misrepresenting, mismarking, misdefining, misknowing, not loving God. First and greatest sin. And you're like, wow, he's all like hellfire damnation preacher today. What's the story? I want to make sure we get the weight of this. I want to make sure that we are not trivial with definitions of God. Because a wrong view of God means you have a wrong God. Or if you have a right view of God but you worship God in wrong ways then you are still violating the same principle. Right, And so we want to make sure we realize that How we understand God, how we see God, and how we know God, it matters. It is the difference between grace or law. It is the difference between uh, proper worship or rebellion. It is the difference between being blessed by God or being ostracized of God. It is the difference between heaven and hell itself. How we see God. This is why God says, here's the first commandment, here's the greatest commandment, here's what matters. Who God is, matters. And so then we have to start to get into, well, what is the definition of that? Right? If uh, who God is matters, the next thing is, well, what God is, matters. Matters. And when I say what God is matters, what I'm talking about is the very essence of God. And as uh, Orthodox, historic Christians, we believe that God is a triunion. Or we sometimes use the phrase Trinity or Trinitarian. These are all words that we use. But God is a triunity. And this is a mysterious truth. It's just mysterious. Now, sometimes people think about that and they go, well, wait a minute. What are you you getting at when you even say what God is matters? Are you talking about like the chemical composition of God? Are you talking about like, you know, what he's made up of? Well, kind of. What we're talking about is his essence, his being, you know, everything that is our glorious God. This is what we mean by what God is matters. And when we look at the Trinity and we see what God is, we go, man, there's a lot of stuff in there. I, I, I just don't understand. I don't know how to wrestle with. I can't even ratchet it all into my two to three pounds of gray matter. Well, of course you can't, because we're talking about the limitless God, and then we're trying to create this architecture to capture that. And from that, I'm just telling you this morning, we're going to talk about the Trinity, and in the end, you're going to go, "I still don't get it." I'm going to like, "That's right, right? None of us are going to fully get it because there is mystery." But what we shouldn't do with that is say, well, because there's mystery, then um, it's not essential. Or because there's mystery, then uh, that must mean that there's a lot of ignorance if there's mystery. And that's not the case. Just because there's mystery doesn't mean it isn't essential or that uh, we're we're totally ignorant of what the Trinity is all about. There's some things we know. In fact, if I gave a parallel, it would be a little bit like if you went to visit a, a military base. And you would be on that base, and there's some places you could go, but then there'd be other places that say, restricted access. And you wouldn't look at that restricted access and say, well, that must not be important because it's mysterious. No, you would say, restricted access, that must be very important, I don't know what's there, I don't fully get it, but I know it's important, and it sets a boundary for me. Well, that's really what the Trinity does. The Trinity is mysterious, but we're not fully ignorant. And just because it's mysterious, it's not non-essential. It's very essential to set up boundaries. In fact, R.C. Sproul said it this way. He said, while the doctrine of the Trinity does not fully explain the mysterious character of God, it does set the boundaries outside of which we must not step. We must not step. See, the Trinity is a die-for doctrine. We talk about doctrines that are die-for, divide-for, debate-concerning, have some discussion regarding, uh, and maybe just kind of, you know, just blow it off, who cares, stuff. I mean, some of that's just low-hanging, nobody cares. But Trinity is die-for stuff. Because it defines God. And so as we understand Trinity, we start with the fact of the unity part of the Trinity. God is one God. We as Christians serve one God. We are monotheists, as we call it in theology. We have one God. And he is one in essence. And when we say essence, we're saying his very being. Uh, If you uh, know philosophy, it's the ontological aspect of God. In other words, the full expression of his person. One in essence. We serve one God. What's Deuteronomy 6, 4 say? Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. That's what we believe. We believe in one God. And that the one God exists in three persons. This is his subsistence. One God, one essence, three persons. In fact, Second Corinthians 13, 14 shows us a picture of this. It talks about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. May that be with you. Here you see all three in concert. The son is doing what the Son does. The Father does what the Father does. The spirit does what the spirit does. They all work for God's collective glory and our good, and that is our triune God. They go, "Well, I don't understand how there can be one in essence and three in subsistence, and you say, "One essence, but three persons in matter, I don't understand, nor do I. But it sets up the boundaries. In fact this isn't just a New Testament idea, in the Old Testament Ryan just read the passage out of Isaiah six, but Isaiah is brought before God, and Israel is rebellious, and man, he is even a rebellious man for a good guy, and then he sees the glory of God, and man, he is undone. and the image there in Isaiah six, you see these seraphim and they 're just around the throne of God, and they are calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And then you go to verse 8. And it says, And then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for? Us. It's like you look at that and you're like, woo Rappy!" Right? Because us and I, in the same phrase about God, and holy, 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 Why are they saying, holy, holy, holy? Because they see Father, they see Son, they see Spirit. They see the three in concert as one, saying, Whom shall we send? Who do I teach to go and teach? Well, we'll send Him for us three. It's just a mystery. I think it's a mystery again. Well, we're not meant to fully get it, but we are to embrace it. Now, when we think about this, some people... um, Take this three and one down different paths, and for some of us we go, ah, "Who cares about the details of three and one? Just believe we'll three and one." Well, it doesn't quite work that way, and so to capture maybe a little bit better the essence of what we're talking about, I'm going to shift our perspective and see if I can kind of teach this from a different angle. So go ahead and check this out. The Trinity. This is a profound and powerful idea. This is holy ground stuff. In fact, uh, we are still on holy ground. So uh, I will ditch the old flip-flops and continue to maintain our posture this morning of being on holy ground. And I I don't take that lightly. I mean that seriously, profoundly seriously. That when we talk about God being one in essence, that's our definition, one in essence, but three in person... When we say that, we mean something very powerful, very holy, very reverent, very central to our Christian faith. Now, when we use that definition, that God is one in essence but three in person, uh, that can be a little bit confusing for people. They kind of hear that and they go, okay, I kind of get it. Is there something uh, by way of illustration that you can help me on to get that? And throughout a lot of my experiences in Christianity over the last 20 plus years, I've seen different illustrations used. And the most popular one that I've seen used, especially like when I was in youth group, right here, you run to the kitchen, you open the fridge and you grab for yourself an egg right here has become the quintessential teaching tool of the Trinity in the evangelical church for like the last 60 years. And basically the idea goes as this. We believe God is one God, but then really within the truth of one God is three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or in this case, our shell, Are white and are yoke. And so we look at that and say, well, there you see the duality of three and one. And it works great for Sunday school and maybe a youth camp somewhere where you're trying to take a mystery and give it some traction. But the reality is that that illustration actually breaks down in an important level. And if we're not aware, what it actually is communicating isn't Trinitarian belief but what we call in theology, modalism. Now, you may not be familiar with the word modalism, but the premise is held by groups such as the Unitarians or the Jehovah's Witnesses. And the idea is basically that there's one God, but that one God isn't existing in three persons like the historic churches believed, but rather that one God displays himself in three different modes. All right. So sometimes God acts as father, Sometimes God acts as Son, and sometimes God acts as Holy Spirit. And so it's not so much three different persons to the essence of one God, but one God, three different dispositions, all right? That's the idea of modalism. Now, for some of you, you're hearing that, and you're like, all I know is that Matt's in his refrigerator with an egg, and I don't understand what modalism means. Well, let me take you to a different part of the house where I think you'll understand a little bit better kind of what I'm getting at. So like I was saying, in modalism, you have the idea that there's one God. And to kind of help you understand this a little bit better, I'm going to play the role of God right now. Now, I know that's a horrifying reality... Nobody, like, burned me at the stake after church. Uh, This is just for illustrative purposes. But in modalism, we'll say that I am God. And then as God, way back, thousands of years ago, I decided that I was going to connect with Abram, who eventually becomes Abraham, the father of the Jews. And so I go down to earth to speak to him, but I decide to take up a particular mode, and that mode is father. And so I grab a fatherly-type hat, place it on my head, A much more calm, fatherly, patient type sounding voice with warnings and judgments if you don't obey. And I speak to Abraham. Don't I sound fatherly right now? Right? And I have a great hat as well. Right? Well, that's what modalists see God did in the Old Testament. He wears the dad hat, goes down to earth as dad, and interacts with the people as father. But at the end of the Old Testament, God looks and he says, you know what? I'm going to shift this up a little bit. Doing the father thing is not necessarily my focus. I'm going to take this off and I'm going to go the route of, you got it, the son, baby. I'm coming down, hanging with the riffraff. I'm going to be with the tax collectors, the sinners, the trash. I'm going to reach out to the hurting, the sinful, the broken, the needy. Right? I am very cracker right now. And this will be on the internet. That is scary. But... God then puts on the hat of sun, and he does the sun stuff, right? So he's reaching out, he's caring for people, he's healing, he's doing all the things that we're familiar with, with the work of the sun. And then, of course, the sun dies on the cross, is buried in the grave, ascends to heaven, and in that ascension, then God says, I don't need to play the role of sun any longer. I'll take off the sun hat and put on the Holy Spirit hat. And who doesn't love a nice Florida sporting hat for the Holy Spirit? And then that's what they see God did. So God the Father, he's hung up on a shelf. God the Son, he's hung up on a shelf. God the Holy Spirit today hanging out with us. Now, if you think my Holy Spirit hat is a little too docile, maybe you're a tongue speaker or more charismatic, I can hook you up. I don't want to cause anybody to not feel more welcomed in this environment. And so... uh, We can go with the cool Holy Spirit hat this way. I I don't mind. It's cool with me. Maybe you're a little bit more of this kind of Holy Spirit. Doesn't matter. Either way, all of these systems are a misrepresentation or a misunderstanding of how we understand Orthodox Trinitarian doctrine. Now, uh... Uh, One of the areas that recently there was a slight kind of drifting into modalism that people didn't fully realize was with a book called The Shack. And if you ever read The Shack or heard about The Shack, it was a little bit in that book as well. The difference was the hats were slightly different. God the Father was, um, right here, large black woman that liked to make pancakes in the kitchen in the morning. Uh, But again, kind of a form of modalism. And then the Holy Spirit was... uh, Quite a dainty and cute little Asian gown. And uh, again, these were uh, ways trying to help communicate an idea about the Trinity. I think the uh, heart and intention behind that was good. But in the end, it kind of missed the mark on what we mean by being Trinitarian or holding to the triunity of... Of God, right? Those are all forms of modalism. But they're not the only problem that we face in the Christian church today. There's another form of misinformation that sort of floats around that we call tritheism. To understand tritheism, I'm going to take you back in the kitchen. All right, here we got going for us right here a little bit of tritheism. All right, got to love that. Now, some of you right now are a little bit horrified because you're looking and you're going, no, 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 wait. Didn't you say this next segment was about tritheism and that was a broken idea? But, Matt, right here, you have an illustration that people use all the time to describe what we actually believe. Well, I do have an illustration here we typically use to describe what we believe. But in reality, unfortunately, the illustration is slightly broken. All right? So let's see if I can unpack this. Now, typically, even among uh, Orthodox Christians, we use this and we say, well, you know, here's the deal. Uh, The Trinity is like H2O, and H2O is, you know, this one basic compound, but then it can exist in three states, a solid, a liquid, or right here in a gas. And we use that to kind of illustrate the unity and diversity of what we believe in the Trinity. And again, while I think that's about as helpful as the egg as far as kind of a base level, point us in the right direction uh, kind of analogy it still breaks down at a certain level. And the level it breaks down at is that it doesn't really capture the dynamic unity between the three. In fact, if anything, it points more in the direction of this idea of tritheism. And tritheism doesn't believe that God is one God in three persons Rather, it believes that there are three gods with one purpose, all right? So there's the difference. We as conservative, orthodox, 2,000 years of Christianity Christians, we believe there is one God in one essence, but three persons. Tritheism believes in three gods with one purpose. Purpose, all right? So there is God the Father who then later established or created God the Son, and then they collaborated somehow to establish or create God the Holy Spirit or God the Holy Ghost, right? And so the Holy Spirit And the sun are not co-eternal, they're not co-equal, they have not been permanent. They came on the scene later after God decided to create two other gods. So these three gods then work in concert to accomplish certain tasks and plans. Now, the group of people most committed to this particular ideology... Is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Mormons? Uh, The Mormon Church believes that there are three gods. They don't believe there's one God and three persons. They believe there's three gods. And so there was God the Father, and eventually he established his son. And then together they established the Holy Ghost. And if you ever understand Mormon theology... Uh, You'll notice that there's even a difference between the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost. They're not even quite the same thing in Mormon doctrine. And so even as Christians, this is why we see Mormonism is not authentically a Christian sect. Uh, We see that they actually hold to a polytheism type of view, where they believe in more than one God. They may be all linked together in purpose, but there's still three distinctly different gods, of which two gods were created by the first god. And so this is why even as a pastor, I'm sometimes asked to do uh, collaboration with Mormons or other groups... Uh, of a spiritual nature or religious nature or something under the label Christian. And every time I turn it down, not because I don't like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or any other group, but because there is something fundamental about what we see as the definition of God. Uh, We don't agree on how we see God. We don't agree on how we see Jesus. We don't agree on how we see the Holy Spirit. And so we don't hold to this tritheism. We hold to triunity. And in that triunity, we acknowledge it's a mystery. We cannot wrap our minds all around it. It's why we use eggs. It's why we use ice water and steam, trying to capture the essence of what we're kind of, you know, just wrestling with. But at the end of the day, it is a mystery. But what we do with this is we realize that even though it's a mystery, there are some things that we are to hold dear even in the mystery. And what we're not to hold dear is one God in three different modes or... Three gods with one purpose. No, we hold to one dynamic, pulsating, beautiful, loving, holy vision of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All sharing the same essence in a dance of their own glory and greatness. And then bringing us in, drawing us in to exposing us to who they are, what they do, and how they glorify one another, and they're glorified in us. That is the essence of the Trinity that we hold dear, and so that is the thing that we try to capture. Now, this doesn't capture it, and the egg doesn't capture it, but I think there's something that, though still incomplete, can maybe capture a little bit of that powerful, dynamic, explosive glory that is God. All right, so how do we then bring everything together? We've just said that these three individual pictures don't quite represent the full package of the Trinity. While it's great that we kind of think about things as kind of Father, Son, and Spirit, or solid, liquid, and gas, uh, again, that still doesn't capture their oneness. In fact, as I thought about this more, I thought maybe there's a way where we can go a little deeper to kind of capture that oneness of essence, but three in person. And and maybe to do that, we go deeper into our elements, and we go, maybe it's not so much H2O that is the oneness, but rather we go to the very atomic level itself, and we say, atoms. Atoms make everything. Atoms are the oneness, but then atoms play out in a subsistence of different elements. And so, for the illustration here to better capture the Trinity, maybe what we need to do is say, well, we need to see the atoms as the one essence representing the one true God, but then it plays in three ways, and those three ways work in concert as a part of their oneness. And so Uh, Maybe to kind of use the analogy, we don't simply see hydrogen and oxygen, but hydrogen, oxygen, and we add the best form of carbon we know. Not just any carbon, carbon dioxide frozen, or as we call it, the beautiful dry ice, man. I love the dry ice. Now, what we're about to do, I want to let you know now, I know there's moms out there going, oh goodness, you have to give the disclaimer Kids, do not do this at home. That's what you moms want. I got that. So kids, do not do this at home. Unless, of course, you suck dad into it. And dad would love to do it. It is that fun. All right. So uh, what we're about to do is kind of capture how you can take the three elements, right? And they share this one elemental principle that they're all bound atomically or at the atom level. But then they have this subsistence in three different ways, which when it works in concert is powerful And explosive. All right, here's where we're getting down to business. Now, the basic idea that we believe as uh, conservative, evangelical, orthodox, historic Christians—those are a lot of words, I uh, know—we believe that the Father has always been right, and so He has just always existed. He has always been God, but then in Himself, He has begotten the Son. But He has begotten the Son eternally, when we see the word begotten or the one and only, if you have like an NIV or something like that, uh, the idea there isn't so much that there was a beginning in Christ, but that rather in the relationship between father and son, the father has eternally begotten the son. Eternally. So it never had a beginning to that. It never has an end to that. They just... Are existing together. And in now, what happens is the Father delights in the Son. The Father glorifies the Son, it says in John 17. In fact, the Father has always glorified the Son. And so that's why Jesus has to be co equal and co eternal and co God. Otherwise, it would be sinful for God to worship something other than Himself. But by worshiping His only begotten Son, He doesn't sin, rather he delights in his own glory. So the father eternally begets the son so as to delight in himself and in his son. At the same time, the son eternally delights in the father, eternally enjoys the goodness of the father, the love of the father, the greatness of the father, the glory of the father, right? So as much as the father glorifies the son, the son glorifies the father. And this union between the two is so powerful and so potent that from the two proceeds the Holy Spirit. In fact, the community of the Father and the Son is so tremendous and so great that it is personified in the third person, the Holy Spirit. That's why we say the three elemental pictures aren't enough. What we need to have is to say, well, how do those come together in concert in their oneness of essence to really celebrate their full picture their full package as being one god one essence in three persons and when we get this picture when we understand it you know what the ramifications they are powerful don't take me home jesus 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 i love trinitarian applied theology That is the power of the Trinity. Oh, if left to my own devices all the time. All right. Yes, and still it's a mystery, but you get the concert, you get the dynamic, you get the dance, that's what we're talking about, that is our trinity. This is, uh, man, what God is, why God is, it matters, it just matters. And to kind of understand the essence of Father, Son, Spirit as God, uh, we affirm certain verses that show they are fully God. We see the Father is fully God, eternal and co-equal, He is God. And we see the Son is fully, eternally, and co-equally God. And the Holy Spirit is fully, eternally, and co-equally God. They're God. And and, and if you meet people that that say, like, yesterday the Jehovah's Witnesses came to our door, and uh, they will say, well, uh, Jesus is not co-equally and eternally God, and the Holy Spirit is not co-equally and eternally God, because the Bible doesn't say Jesus is God or the Holy Spirit is God. And I say... Yes, it does. All right, right there. All right, Second Peter one one. Right, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Bible says Jesus is God. All right? They'll say it doesn't say the Holy Spirit's God. Well, Ananias lied to God, and by that, he was lying to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is God. And so from an orthodox point of view, us understanding what the Bible teaches, again, we're different than the other groups. We have a different formula that we work off of. The Jehovah's Witnesses have a simple formula. One divided by three equals .33 times one again, or times three equals almost one. I mean, that's theirs, right? It's very confusing. If you read their literature, more confusing. Right? And I, I actually spent a few years in the kingdom of Jehovah's Witnesses. So, good people, moral people, kind people, loving people. In other words, sincere. But how we define God matters. If it's not the Jehovah's Witnesses that have a different view of the Trinity than us, it's going to be the Mormons. And the Mormons have a different view. Their formula is 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 3. And God the Father has allegedly always been. God the Son was created. Holy Ghost created. Not co-equal, not co-eternal. And again, I think this is a very important point because we live in a community with a lot of Mormons. I am friends with some of the, the leadership of the Mormon church in our community. Again, I think they're amazingly kind and wonderful people. I do. But we do not agree on this point. And it's a substantial and serious point we don't agree on. When we talk about Jesus, we're talking about two different definitions of Jesus, which is even why, if you go back and you look at Joseph Smith, the reason, allegedly, this angel came and spoke to him was because the church, for a couple of thousand years, got Jesus wrong. And God finally said, let me straighten this out. Here's the right Jesus. And the church up to that point, according to Joseph Smith, was a wrong church, a broken church, an apostate church, and Joseph Smith needed to fix and create the right church. Now, I think there's a lot of anti-Mormon propaganda out there that isn't what they believe, but this is what they believe, which is why we are not on the same page. See, our formula in historic Christianity is one times one times one, and it equals one. That's our formula. That is the formula of the church for, like I said, 2,000 years. The God is one in essence, but three in person. Now, you might hear all of this and say, well, does it matter? I mean, really, Matt? I'm just trying to love my spouse, raise my kids, be a good person, do right things, whatever else. And I go, well, that's all awesome. All that stuff's important. But the issue is why we do it and to whom we do it to. And if we miss the whom we do it to, then all that other stuff, it's just being a good human being on the planet before we're six feet under. For things to have eternal magnitude... We have to dial into our eternal God, and that he has eternally been this. Now, one of the reasons that matters is actually something that we hold uh, profoundly dear, right? As far as, like, why God is matters, or rather, why God is a trinity matters. Why that actually has value to us as individuals, and here's the big reason right here. I'm going to see if I can bring this all together really quick. The fact that God is a trinity is what we actually say a necessary component to who God is. It's necessary that God is trying. It's not just reality or nice, it's necessary is what we say in theology. And you go, well, wow, now you're saying what's necessary for God. Aren't you arrogant? You blow stuff up in your backyard, it gives you authority. All right, so... no, here, here's what we mean by this. I, I want you to take a statement. Everybody's going to agree within this room. Ready? We're going to affirm in concert that God is love. God is love. And we go, amen, that's true. 1 John 4, 9 says God is love. I don't disagree. Well, this says uh, something about his essence doesn't just simply say God is loving it says God is love this is the very fabric of his person so here's the question I ask really quick does love need an object does love need an object so that love can be exercised can something's essence be love And yet for eternity past, have nothing to exercise love toward. Have nothing to have love brought toward it. If you have no place to exude love, and you have nothing in which to receive love from, can your essence be love if you're just solo? I'm talking about your essence, because God's essence is love. So can God have the essence of love and be eternally solo until some point where he says, I'm going to create my son. And then I'm going to create the spirit, and eventually I'm going to create creation so I can love all of those. Or is there the reality, to have your essence be love, you need to at least be a community. And to be eternally love, you need to be an eternal community. See, the reality is that's just the case. Your essence can't be love without an object. Right? Love requires object. Love must be expressed. In fact, this is even why uh, earlier in 1 John 4, 7, it says love is from God, because God expresses love, for God is love. And so we look and we go, God the Father, solo, not enough. For the eternal nature of God's love to always exist, there needed to be community. So right now, I'm going to use my kids as an illustration of this. And first, I'm going to bring up my oldest daughter, Honor. So Honor, why don't you come up, on, up here right now? We'll put the other kids on deck. We're a little bit like the Mariners, except I think we'll hit it out of the park on this one. All right, so... Um, Sorry. Um, So honor is playing the role of father. Uh, Don't get too caught up in her being a girl. We'll just work with it. All right. So she is father, but again, to exude love, to be the essence of love, love then needs object and direction. And so for that, we're going to bring up my one and only son, Grayson. All right, Gray, why don't you get up here? You're going to play the role of son. All right, let's bring you over here, my man. You got no socks on, bro. What's up? All right. So so for their essence of love, for the essence of love of the father means the father is to express love to the son. And then the role of the son is to express Love to the father. And this is the community of eternal love. And this is why we say the son has to have always been. Otherwise, the father hasn't always been love. And if the father hasn't always been love, what has the father been? If the father's essence is love, there needed to be eternal community. Now, in theology, we say the Son is begotten of the Father, but we say it eternally. So again, the Son wasn't at one point created, and that's what begotten means. What it means is that the Father has always just expressed love to the Son, and then the Son reciprocates the love to the Father. Now, in theology with this, we say that sharing of love is even more deep than that because we also identify that God has been eternally glorious and eternally happy. And I know we don't typically think of God as happy. We see him as kind of a curmudgeon on the couch, kind of like, oh, stupid humans. You know, but that's not him. Right? God is eternally happy and eternally glorious. And where that exchange between the two plays out is in the third person of the Trinity, which is the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to bring up my daughter Emma now to play the Holy Spirit. All right, Emma, you come here. Hey there, my cutie pie. All right, let's hook you up here. You are spirit. All right. And in theology, what we say is while the Father begot the Son, the Father and the Son have from them proceeding all the time the Holy Spirit. This is why it says the Father sends the Spirit. It also says the Son sends the Spirit. We say eternally, Father and Son have had the Spirit proceeding from each other so to kind of pull some verses together really quick we think about what Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in John 17 he says father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed because you loved me before the foundations of the world right so the father has eternally loved the son and the son has eternally loved the father and they have glorified each other eternally this is the community of God but then this happens because the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, shares the heart, shares the mind, shares the love back and forth. In some ways you could even say the Spirit is the Spirit of the community of God by sharing those things back and forth perpetually and eternally. In fact, even you see like in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians rather, uh, chapter 2. This should be 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. I think this is going to say second It should be 1 it says, but it was to us that God revealed these things by his Spirit, for his Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own Spirit, and no one can know God's thoughts except God's own Spirit. See, the Spirit fully knows the Son. The Spirit fully knows the Father. The Spirit fully shows the love of the Father that is to the Son. The Son has, through the Spirit, shown love to the Father. I mean, again, this is just the dance, This is their unity and diversity, all for God's glory. Now, again, we can't wrap our mind around it. But this is the 2,000-year-old definition that we have given. In fact, here is kind of the wrap-up of that definition. Father has eternally begotten the Son. Spirit has eternally proceeded from both the Father and the Son toward one another with love, happiness, and glory. It's just been a dance. In fact, uh, in Greek, the word is used parachloresis, which is the idea of a circle dance. The Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, and the dance. Eternal. Now, what's cool about this is the next component. We're going to bind you in oneness, redneck style. All right? Put on Dad's giant rubber band. All right. Let's give that to you to you, and to you. Aren't you kids cute? All right. This is the best rubber band shooter ever made. All right, so, now, am i going to have you step back, and I, I, I'm going to bring us into the equation now, because, you know, we've said this matters within God, but then what we notice about the triune God is that the triune God is Savior. Is savior And to do that, I'm going to bring up another friend of mine, Tanner Bailey. So, Tanner, why don't you come up right now? All right. And uh, you just stand actually right here. I'm going to have you be right there. All right. So here's the most important thing about Tanner. I had a list of a lot of people I could use for this. And I had to look really hard and think about it. And I go, who is the biggest sinner I know? And so um, <laughs> I went with Tanner. All right. So. So here's the thing. I'm going to leave Sinner Tanner right there. We're going to leave the Triune God right there. And what you're going to see as they then work in concert as Savior is that, first of all, the Father sees and seeks the sinner. I mean, this is what the Bible affirms. The Father sees the sinner. The Father seeks the sinner. He wants the sinner. He wants to redeem. He wants to save. He wants to draw to himself, draw into this community. So the Father says, I see the sinner. I see the need. I seek them out. But then you have the Son. And the Bible says the Son is sent of the Father. So the Son, now, look at that. Emma's like, you're pulling the Holy Spirit into this. What are you doing? Alright, so, um, the Son is sent of the Father to the sinner. Now, the Trinity isn't broken. Uh, That community is not disrupted as the Son is sent to the sinner. But he's sent. And then the Bible says the son does something completely crazy. Though coequal, equal co-eternal, fully God, he takes Tanner's sin. Right? God takes sin. And then the father crushes the son. The father... And you're smiling too much about that. All right. Um, <laughs> the father totally punishes all of the sin of tanner in the sun decimates him completely right so six hours one friday all of that happens and so jesus who knew no sin becomes tanner's sin and then he is buried after he dies he's buried put in a tomb and then three days later it is the spirit who raises the Son? The Father sends the Son to the sinner. The Son goes to the sinner. Son dies for the sinner. Father crushes the sin of the sinner in the Son. And the Spirit raises the Son in their union. And from that, Tanner goes from sinner to in the Son. And so, with that, Tanner, I want you to get right under here and come here. Because you are uniquely connected to the Son. But from that moment on, He's in the community. He's in the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. And so you are drawn closer to the relationship by which... That was a good shuffle. um, By which then the Spirit seals and sanctifies the former sinner who is now in the Son. The Son mediates for the sinner to the Father and the Father fully receives... The one who is a sinner. He's brought into community. Give him a hand. You can just take it off. That means God is receiver. And and I close with a passage out of John seventeen that I think pulls that whole thing together, and you get it, and you understand how the triune God, who has always been love, in love, says, I'm going to seek, I'm going to receive, and I'm going to draw in fully to my community. In fact, Jesus, again, it's his high priestly prayer, last big prayer uh, of his earthly ministry. And he says in John 17, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world will believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. He's gone, he suffered, died, rose, brought into community. I've given it to them. It says, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. It says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. That is one of the most profound pieces of the Bible you can read because it's not just that we worship God from a distance, but that through the gospel we're drawn into the union of God. In the Son, we're in the union. What this means ultimately is this. The triune God is our home. God isn't just our God. God is our home. Where we eternally dwell in His perfect love, His unbridled happiness, and His fulfilling glory. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your wisdom. I thank You for hard things that are beautiful things. And I pray that we will long for you, that we will protect uh, how you define yourself to be, that we will be people of the community of the Godhead, that we will celebrate what you as a triune God have done for your glory and for our good. We love you in your awesome name, amen.